This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations for 2022 continues the climate action theme with a series of events hosted by Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making. This recording is from an event recently held at Turanga Library called The Water City Under Climate Stress and features local experts and passionate people working in this area. It's introduced by Jessica Halliday, the director of Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making. Kia ora koutou. Um, we're about to start, so if you could take your seats. Uh, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. Uh, ki te mana whenua o tēni takiwa naitua huriri, kei te mihi, kei te mihi, kei te mihi. Uh, ko Jessica Halliday, tōku ingoa, ko ahau te kaiwhakahaere o te Pūtahi, Centre for Architecture and City Making. Uh, kia ora uh, tātou katoa. It's my pleasure to welcome you all, those in the room and those joining us online, to the Water City Under Climate Stress, the fifth and final event in the 2020 edition of Te Whakawhiti Korero Christchurch Conversations towards 2030. In this series of 10 speaker events over two years, we've been considering the ways we can work together in this place to reduce climate emissions and transform the city for a more uncertain future. Before we start, there are two groups of organisations and people who have made today's... Um, yes, great. Who have made today's, tonight's event possible and that we at Te Putahi would very much like to thank. Um, those would be our sponsors, our series partner, Christchurch City Council, and our research partner, the Urban Wellbeing Nakaina Ora thread of building better homes, towns and cities, one of the national science challenges. Secondly, the others who are absolutely essential to this evening are our incredibly knowledgeable and generous speakers. Thank you all for accepting our invitation to speak and to help us all better understand the potential for a fresh relationship with water to transform our city. Um, tonight's event involves four short presentations followed by a panel discussion and closes with a reading by a remarkable and noted poet. Whether you're in the room or joining us online, we invite all of you to submit questions to the panel. However, of course, we'll only have time for so many. Um, if you're joining us online, you can ask a question in the chat on YouTube and the Te Putahi team will relay the questions to the panel. It's a packed program, so we keep our introductions really short. Um, and if you see me waving, it's because they're going over time. Um, as I mentioned, this is the 10th event in a two-year series of 10 events that look at climate action in this place, Ōtotahi Christchurch and the Greater Christchurch region. Tonight's topic is the relationship between water, climate and this place. And it feels like an incredibly important conversation to be holding. We at Te Putahi feel like we've been making our way to this conversation for some years, not just, and not just through the climate lens. We acknowledge all that we've learnt from listening to other speakers on water and place, water and climate, place and regeneration, from listening to Prof Tamari To talk about water at the Word Festival and at the university, 
to listening to Mike Joy talk about water at Coca Gallery in 2016, to listening to Christina Hill talk about landscape adaptation and climate at Christchurch Conversations in 2017, and Bill Reed talk about regeneration through understanding the essence and potential of place at Christchurch Conversations in 2019. Two weeks ago, listening to Ritori Chakraborty talk about this place as a delta when he had no idea that one person would be talking about that very topic tonight. So these things seem to be coming together, and we invite you to listen, to open your minds to this conversation, which asks not just what will the effects of climate change be on our local water systems, but what if we planned and designed our city around water as a source of life and culture? I'd like to ask you to join me in welcoming our first speaker, who's going to help us answer this question, Dr. John Reid. Well, tēnā koutou katoa, ko te mihi, tuatahi i mihi ki ngā atua, ko Ranginui Roa me Papatua Nuku. Tuaro rā he mihi ki ngā atua huriri, ko te mihi tuatoru ki ngā kaiwhakariti ki te pūtahi. Tuawhā rā he mihi ki te mininga, tēnā koutou katoa. Ko Matawhauta toku maunga, ko Kutuna toku wawa, Ko Ngāti Pikeo mai tainui me tauiwi tōku okuiwi po te arawa tōku waka. Nō reira, tēnā koutou katoa. So it's a privilege to speak to you all this evening. I started the talk by acknowledging the ground below us and the sky above us and the Indigenous people of this land, Ngāi Tuahuriri. The organisers of this series of talks, Te Putahi, and of course you all, the audience. Um, I also outline my own whakapapa, uh, my genealogical connections uh, to Ngāti Pikiao and Tainui, to North Island Iwi, and uh, also to my settler ancestors. Now, for over 20 years, I've been involved in research uh, with one common theme, uh, sustainability transitions. Uh, this is the science of how we move from an exploitative relationship with our environment uh, to one that is sustainable, a regenerative one. Uh, where societies live in synergy uh, with uh, their environment and, um, and the places that they find themselves. Um, for over 20 years, I've had the deep honour of working for Naitahu in one way or another, uh, a people that share the passion uh, that I have. And although I'm not Naitahu, um, they've had a huge influence on my work. Now, as I wrote uh, this talk and uh, developed this presentation, a theme kept coming to mind, uh, that of something resurfacing or something coming up from underground. Our Ototahi or Christchurch sits on a delta, um, a delta where streams uh, flow and where springs come forth from under the earth, uh, following their ancient journeys from uh, our southern Alps um, to pop up in our backyards as springs. Um, and the earthquakes too brought about a resurfacing uh, where the land sunk and where the water rose, um, shaking people's lives up, uh, yet reminding us that uh, this is a place of water, a delta where wetlands, streams, birds and fish once dominated. And also emerging from this hibernation, um, uh, maintained by the ahikā, the keepers of the home fires, 
uh, Naitahu culture is also resurfacing uh, from the underground and from where its embers have been tended uh, for over 100 years. And its face can now be seen in uh, post-earthquake Christchurch uh, with all the art um, and design we see around us on the streets and also with the uh, lagoons and wetlands that are being restored. And uh, Naito Huriri are very important to us here um, because they're the people of the Delta and they hold the kind of deep memories of this place as it once was and their cultural um, codes uh, tell us how to live in it and uh, with it. Um, and finally, merging from underground and also from above us is climate change. And what this means is uh, we're getting the sea encroaching and our water tables are rising. And with a warmer atmosphere that holds more water, we're also going to get more extreme events uh, such as floods. And this poses us a question um, of how we're going to adapt to the situation. Or perhaps most importantly, what are the cultural codes that we're going to draw upon as this happens? Uh, do we embrace the delta to become a deltaic city? Or do we resist and ignore that which is emerging from under our feet? And if we do want to embrace the delta, um, what can that original del deltaic culture tell us um, that Naituahuriri holds? Um, now, I'm just going to head back to... Uh, this is a, a, um, a map of how Christchurch once was. And thanks to uh, Ngaitahu Archives, digitalising the original survey maps of Ototahi, the black maps, uh, we can see where the um, broader Christchurch area now sits, um, is on top of what was ponds, uh, wetlands, river channels, dunelands, uh, fernlands, grasslands and interspersed with patches of forest, um, the remnants of which we now see um, in Rickett and Bush. Now, if I uh, place the map there of um, urban Christchurch over the black maps, and we can see that approximately 30% of this area was once permanently covered in surface water. However, we could anticipate in flooding events this extent would have been much larger just to illustrate how extensive these water bodies were, it was possible to um, paddle a. Uh, uh, there it is. It was possible to paddle a mokihi, which was a um, a, a, a walker or a, um, a pond um, that was weaved out of reeds, um, seventy-five kilometres um, from Kaiapoi. Uh, traveling through the suburbs of Christchurch on, uh, all the way to Talmutu. And you'd have to drag it over small sections um, of land. And the other thing to note is the abundance of wildlife um, that once existed here. Uh, we know from ecology um, that uh, deltas are about eight times more productive than farmland. And so they produced an abundance of wild foods or mahingakai in terms of fish and birds. Uh, that could sustain the people of Naitohuriri and other hapu um, dwelling on the raised areas across the delta. Now, this brings me to my next slide. Um, now, this is a picture from Iraq, and it illustrates the settlements of the Marsh Arabs, um, where we can see dwellings constructed, uh, constructed on raised areas throughout the delta. And this is not too dissimilar to how um, Christchurch once was. 
Um, unfortunately, there's, uh, there's not too many paintings or images capturing this um, other than a painting which um, here uh, depicts Chief Tiaika's uh, whare on Cam River. However, like Naituahuridi, the marsh Arabs experienced the draining of their delta and uh, being uh, resentful of their independence and seeing them as a source of resistance, uh, Saddam Hussein set about draining the marshes to make the populace more amenable to control and to eradicate the deltaic culture that underpinned the marsh Arab identity. Now, uh, I do not wish to imply the motivation for the drainage of the Waitaha Delta. Um, here was, by successive governments, was the same as Saddam Hussein's, but um, instead it was, it was driven by a desire to um, tame and civilise nature and turn what was seen as unproductive into uh, productive land, and uh, while also creating a logistically strategic site for commerce and settlement and goods to be sent via Littleton for export. Um, the native population was, though, um, viewed in a similar way, with Naituahuridi Delta culture viewed as something uh, backward and needing to be civilised, uh, much like the Delta. However, in parallel to the Marsh Arabs, the effect of the draining the, um, of the Delta was much the same. What it left was smaller and smaller islands in which that Delta culture and identity could be practised. And uh, the resulting pain of that is reflected in Naitahu's treaty settlements, um, and which was made up of nine key grievances, one of which was uh, uh, Kai. And this concerned uh, the loss of habitats and access to the wild foods that underpinned Naitahuriri culture. Now, today, the... Um, uh, the, the, the codes of this Deltaic culture are contained in the arts and songs and symbols and stories and hunting practices and foraging um, culture of Naituahuridi. Um, you know, the water, the plants, the fish, they all flow into the art, uh, whether it's the pattern of the pātiki or in a kotukutuku wall panel, the sculptures of eels um, migrating on their way to the sea. Uh, perhaps for me the most important thing is that the Deltaic culture brings another way of thinking about our relationships to place. Um, from my perspective, nothing captures this better than the term waitipuna described throughout the Iwi management plan. Now, underpinning this term is a deep and profound way of seeing the world based on whakapapa or genealogy. According to this view, everything is related to us a view that science is now catching up with as genetic sequencing is now revealing that all living things descend from a common ancestor and as such are literally related to us. They are all cousins, um, albeit distant. Furthermore, this living family is uh, dependent on the water, earth, sun and air, the progenitors of life, which make up this extended family. And it's from this view that the water, um, the delta we live on, is considered from a Naituahuridi percent perspective, a, a relation or an ancestor, a tipuna, as well as the wider families of fish and birds and plants that depend on it. Um, they are based on Māori ethics um, relations that we have obligations to protect. So they are, like ourselves, may persist, persist for many generations to come. And it was this thinking in mind that I want to approach and uh, look at the future. Um, how do we reimagine Otetahi uh, as a deltaic city? Um, one that embraces the re-emergence of the Delta through climate change, whilst at the same upholds the, the, the cultures that are re-emerging. Now, this 
for me, comes through taking the traditional principles, uh, insights and knowledge from mana whenua and combining it with new generations of architects, artists, designers, engineers, entrepreneurs, scientists and planners that think in regenerative ways and creating a place which has the built spaces that reflect the delta. Um, while making space for our non-human relations that also call the delta home and for mahingakai practices of, uh, for naituhurudi to flourish. Um, however, at its heart, building a deltaic city requires political buy-in from lots of different parties and it requires a strong voice from the Indigenous people. This raises the question of how the voice of Manu can make its way into the political world and when it has so long been underground, so to speak. Now, the Māori reserve areas uh, in Canterbury have been petitioning for nearly 100 years to have water services that match the services uh, to similar-sized settlements around them. Um, they've also petitioned for improved treatment and management of water generally, uh, which they've had some success at more recently. Um, and whether co-governance is the appropriate vehicle um, for bringing that voice forward is something that I'm agnostic about, however an enduring structure is needed. However, what is clear to me is that uh, those water infrastructure issues are very localised, and as a consequence, uh, we, they need, the solutions need to be bespoke, and what might work for Christchurch um, might not work in other places. The other political realm is, of politics is Te Mano um, a policy that's focused on raising the quality of fresh water across the country. In uh, Waitaka Canterbury, we're on the forefront of the dis this discussion, um, seeing that our quality of fresh water has um, declined significantly over the last few decades. And port, port, you know, what stands out to me most about Te Mano Tawai is its name. Um, it's describing uh, mana and dignity to water, or seeing the water as having value in of itself. And I see the influence of Māori thinking in this with the idea of waitupuna, um, or water being a relation of ours that needs to be looked after. And having spent most of my time working in the agricultural sector, I think that the development of nutrient emission standards is good and will drive innovation needed to solve the problems we're facing. And the highlight to me at the moment is the regenerative farming that's popping up all over the place, which is showing great, so, you know, great promise at uh, reducing emissions and cleaning our water up. Now, this brings me to my last slide. Now, as I started this talk, um, I outlined how a combination of climate change is bringing the river delta on which Christchurch sits um, back to the surface. Uh, we can anticipate rising sea level leading to coastal inundation and rising water table. We can also anticipate more extreme events. The question is how do we adapt to this? And, and with Naito Hurudi, we've been exploring this question. So we've been partnering with a research program called Extreme Events, uh, which includes scientists from Niwa, Manaki Whenua, UC, Victoria University and Oxford University. And we're modelling... Uh, the anticipated size and frequencies of uh, flood events over the next 100 years and what their impacts will be. Um, it's probably too small to, to, uh, to see, but uh, there's a graph there, the one on the left, um, which shows that at 1.5 degrees warming, uh, 1 in 25-year flood events turn into 1 in 15-year events. Um, so we wanted to test what would happen if we... Um, what would 
if we began to rebuilding parts of the Waitaha Delta, what impact would that have on uh, future climate change and events? Now, in America, uh, insurance companies are now valuing Delta systems at $11,000 per hectare per year um, for the role they play in protecting coastal communities from extreme flood and storm events. Um, Junelands provide a flexible buffer from storm surges and rising sea levels, uh, shifting and growing with sand deposits, and wetlands can provide a place for water to go during um, floods, um, decreasing outflows, while also recharging aquifers um, that can provide water during drought events. Um, they also store carbon and clean water from contaminated nutrients and allow fresher water to flow into channels. And forests planted in steeper gullies and catchments reduce sediment flowing, uh, flowing into streams and increases the capacity of soil to hold moisture, which slows floodwaters and reduces outflow. And so this graph, the far on the right, you can't see that um, clearly, but what it shows is that um, by doing riparian planting, it reduces the outflow events or extreme events. So in whole, we're looking at how we, how we can rebuild the sort of delta systems to, to, uh, to mitigate climate change. And I think what can be taken from this talk is um, the Christchurch delta is resurfacing. Uh, the question is how might this delta, as it reforms, be engineered uh, to provide us with a buffer against the effects of climate change, enabling us to adapt? Further, how might we become to identify ourselves as a deltaic city and uh, live in synergy with that delta? And how might architecture, art, planning constru and construction reflect the delta and given, given expression in our culture? And finally, how might the original deltaic culture, Naituahuriri, bring and apply its cultural codes to this transformation. Uh, kia ora, John. Um, thank you so much for opening up this conversation in a way that makes so many connections for us between people, place, culture and potential. Could you please um, welcome our next speaker, Dr Daniel Collins. Kia ora koutou, uh, ko um, kapawai uh, te maonga ko wakare te awa, ko uh, ngāpuhi uh, te iwi, ko te kapatai toku, uh, hapu ko Daniel Collins toku ingoa. Uh, thank you very much Jessica um, and te putahi for organising this and the previous talks. Kia ora also John for your great talk, some of which I'll be overlapping with of course, and other speakers and the, the, the pending uh, discussion and also kia ora to um, uh, who have been living and learning here before uh, Christchurch was an idea. Um, so what I'll talk about today, and with also acknowledgement to Lewis Carroll, with a slightly distorted reference to a Christmas carol, um, I'll talk about a more um, hydrological perspective of, 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 of Otetahi, um, past, present and future. Um, for, for the past, I'd like to go uh, into, into more distant time, long before people were here. Um, one of my first professions, uh, will be a brief, was as a geomorphologist. Um, and I actually studied alluvial fans uh, in my undergrad. Um, and the whole of Canterbury Plains is basically uh, lots of um, coalescing alluvial fans, something that's called the Bahada. Um, and we sit on land here that is the product of that. 
um, between glacial cycles with a sea level with sea level low, uh, the mighty rivers uh, draining the Alps fed the plains in Christchurch with gravel. Uh, when the sea level rose, marine deposits find silts um, and mud, layer them, and then uh, more gravel, and then mud, and then gravel, and then mud. In the end, you get um, a geological layer cake, as you see down there. And that's a really important context for our hydrology um, in, the, in this. It's, it, the, the gravel act as aquifers, water carriers that take the water from up in the plains, um, down towards Christchurch, but when, they, when it approaches the, ground, uh, the sea, sea level, they come up and the, the lower aquifers are, are phreatic, they want to go up, and that gives rise to springs. Now, um, some context that's even more recent about how this, the landscape is built up um, is uh, the Waimakariri. So, uh, in, for some people, living memory, the Waimakariri has flooded in, into Christchurch. Um, and here's a picture from 1926 where the uh, stop banks, where the, where the banks uh, of, the, of the Waimakariri broke, uh, flooded over, and was a bit of a nuisance. Um, so that's, though, events like that is how the Canterbury Plains um, was built. The Waimakariri was not always where it was, and in the future it will be somewhere else. Um, and and some of the, some of the water, as I mentioned, that that, that pushes up comes up underground. Uh, John mentioned it. Um, well, comes up in springs. Um, my favourite in Christchurch. I don't know the mighty name. The Redwood Springs. I, I like every now and then. I'll take my son there to have a look. The photo doesn't doesn't do, do total justice. An underwater camera is the best. Um, but go there if you haven't been there. You see really tangibly the water upwelling uh, from underground. Uh, water that previously infiltrated probably from um, the Waimakariri uh, River or from the plains just up, just to the west of the city. And then it comes up and it bubbles up. It's, it's not air that's bubbling up, it's water, and you can see it beautifully in the, in the disturbed sand. Um, it's a nice walk um, there and, and it's a very pleasant place to, 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 to be. Um, and there are springs all over the place. Um, and it's because of that convergent hydrology is why this uh, map that you previously saw from John is so blue. It's a delta, or it can be thought of as, an, as a delta, because there's convergence of water that, that gives rise to the wetlands. Um, uh, and uh, wetlands that, act in, in part, act as a sponge, which is probably a word we'll come back to uh, later on in this evening's discussion. So this is an impression of... of um, the most recent natural um, hydrological environment of this of this area, of course, Ngaitu um, Hariri were will have been living uh, living here around around that time, and and you they uh, learned around, uh, about this place um, and had had time to do so, um, and and that's that's the that's kind of the, how I see the the past, um, but the present is also important. Um, Here's a, here's, a, here's a quote from, from a letter of, uh, from David Munro um, after he summited the Port Hills and looked over the landscape. Close to the base of them is a canal-looking stream which winds very much. This is what uh, Dupper and Daniel named the Serpentine, uh, but the native name is Opawaha, or actually Opawaho. Um, and, and it talked about the navigability of it up to a point. And you can actually look at that from a, from a hydrological point of view. On the lower section... Um, it was, was indeed navigable. Uh, that's why we got the name Ferry Road. 
but if you go further up, um, it becomes it, it, the, the channel changes. Um, the ups and downs in the top graph, that's tides. You don't have to have just tidal effects at the coast. They also go quite a way, fair way up the river. But if you, go too, if you go far enough, you get away from that tidal influence, well, most of it, and it most becomes pluvial, um, rainfall driven. So, so you can see those things even, the effects even now. Um, but when the Europeans came along, um, we wanted land more than we wanted water, so we started draining things. Um, here's, a, here's a pump station on, on Turin, which is still there, not the chimney, um, uh, immortalised in Doris's Lusk uh, painting and then a stamp of her painting. Um, so even the drainage has been um, romanticised um, in uh, colonial culture. Um, we paved over it. Um, we put up put roads and really changed the hydrology. The water, the blue, disappeared in large, large areas. Um, until more recently when we realised that uh, we need to return back to the sponge city um, in a way, or pl- sponge place, uh, and put up uh, flood retention basins. This is near, near, near where, I, where I live, and I like to take my son there. Son there and uh, you probably knew the term flood retention basin before we knew what those words meant. Um, and so that's a wonderful place to visit. And, and it functions as a sponge, uh, improving water quality and um, s- slowing, slowing flood, flood, flood releases. So that's kind of the state we're in now, and I consider all that's present. But what are the future? Oh, yes, one more thing. I should say, we've been talking about floods. We should also think about water as, um, in terms of drinking water. Um, this blue area is, is the, the primary uh, area that we get water from, um, the Waimakariri River and that land there. So that's why you can have to manage that um, to protect that so we get uh, drinking water that we don't have to treat as much. Um, but because nature is nature, we get floods sometimes and we get droughts sometimes. And that's why we sometimes go on uh, water restrictions. Um, but that's the present and what's of the future. So very briefly, it's going to get warmer. We don't know how much, we'll see. Um, fortunately, since this graph came out, um, we realised that we're tracking for not as bad situation as we used to be. But nonetheless, things are going to get warmer. What does that mean? Well, what happens in it when it's hot? We use more water. And so you can imagine in summer, in this garden city, we'll irrigate more. Um, and the farms too. Um, Sea level rise, the thermal expansion of the sea across the, across the world, uh, will lead to um, maybe 20 centimetres of sea level rise, um, perhaps by mid-century, or yes, um, and vertical land movement, that's that VLM. Anyone can go to this graph, NZ sea rise. Um, but we're going to have a sea level rise. Now, that, that brings more flooding, more nuisance flooding to the coast, more flooding upstream. My, where I live near the Opawahu, that will, flood, that will probably flood more as a result. But also groundwater will rise near the coast um, because it has to meet the sea level. Um, your power hole, tidal influence. There's a, there's a stomp bank in the middle. Um, it's not doing much. Uh, the river's on the left. The, road is on the, on, uh, the river is on your right. The road is on the left. Um, some stomp banks can prevent nuisance flooding. Uh, but, what, but if you want to prevent all floods, they have to be so huge. So there's going to be a trade-off. And risk, how much type of risk you, you wish to accept beyond modifying uh, your environment. Um, so that is a very quick snapshot of hydrology past, present, and maybe future of Otatahi Christchurch. Um, and with that, I'm pretty sure I'm over time. So I will leave it. 
Thank you, Daniel. Um, could you please welcome, thank you, Daniel, in case no one heard me, um, could you please uh, welcome our next speaker, Dr. Matthew Bradbury, who has elected to join us all the way from Tamaki Makauro. Thanks, uh, Jessica. And, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm from Tamaki and uh, grew up in uh, Titarangi, Manukau Harbour, um, and uh, just want to thank Jessica's kind invitation to come come down here. It's um, it's uh, been great, and also my uh, my colleagues, my fellow panelists, be amazing uh, to uh, be part of this part of this discussion. I want to acknowledge Anafenua, and also I'd like to acknowledge my colleagues from from Lincoln. Are they? Are there? Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, my uh, brothers and sisters. So um, I guess what we've seen is um, outlined is um, a really, yeah, so I guess what we've seen already this evening is this really uh, kind of amazing uh, kind of idea that John's presented us with. Um, it's really a kind of a, a, a really new trope about, about urban development. And, you know, what we'd, I guess what John's doing is he's sort of flipping Christchurch as a sort of, and we understand as this kind of classic grid city. It's certainly, you know, certainly I've kind of taught it um, many times, you know, the central square, the churches, the, the surrounding squares, the avenues, uh, and so forth. And then um, I think this, this trope of, of Christchurch as a, as a Deltaic city is, is really kinds of, you know, flips that, that kind of understanding of, of a city to a, a new kind of city. Um, where the underlying hydrology is coming through. And with climate change, uh, increased flooding, increased rainfall, that's going to really you know, drive this return of the, um, of the delta. So, uh, you know, I guess just kind of looking at it from the outside, the traditional urban relationships of city, city building to, you know, to a square or to a street or to a park and the suburban house to, to the garden, all these kinds of relationships are really going to be upended. Um, and... You know, what's this new kind of city going to look like? I guess we could speculate that there'll be a different kind of relationship um, of building or habitation to the natural world to a kind of um, indigenous um, nature. So how is that going to work? Next slide. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to quickly show a project um, in, in Tamaki. This is in Glenness. This is from a, a joint studio um, um, landscape architects and architects um, and uh, so I'm just going to show you uh, some slides from, from student work um, it's Archana Archul and uh, Abigail Spence um, so it's a kind of, this, this project's a Kayangora project um, it's got something like 300 um, houses, single story suburban houses with gardens and it's on a, a small Awa, the Omaru and a little um, park. So the houses are in, in pretty pretty bad condition. Kaingora wants to rebuild this, but with with more density. And uh, in addition to this, there's also very bad flooding um, in in the site. Uh, the site was developed by Housing New Zealand in the 50s, and they they pipe you know, streams, which is obviously not such a great idea. So um, I guess the project is how do you build density, but at the same time, how do you build resilience to the effects of um, climate change? And so what I'm I'm just going to try and show um, you is a sort of process where the urban form uh, is driven by um, 
the I guess both the existing landscape conditions and also um, some speculative kind of conditions. And then the urban layout, the subsequent urban layout, is is really kind of a consequence of this of this mapping um, process. So there are three. Um, um, so there are three, I guess, parts to this kind of map. There's the um, uh, the existing site. So, um, so there you can see the site, the, the housing, um, and then uh, there's a mapping of what the existing landscape conditions are, catchment, subcatchment, topography, the hydrology, and uh, kind of problems with flooding. And then uh, along with this kind of mapping, there's, a, I guess, a series of um, uh, design kind of moves which um, try and take this mapping in a kind of um, speculative uh, way but kind of give agency to these natural conditions. So I guess the first one is looking at the natural um, landscape and um, protecting and enhancing those um, kinds of spaces. Uh, attempting to restore and uh, enable and protect the existing biodiversity and to and to and to build on that. Whoa, that's that's very exciting. It's that's uh, my slideshow as a kinetic event. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, looking at the existing um, um, existing hydrology. And um, so this bit here you can see is, I'm not going to drop on the stage, but um, this kind of corner is where the, um, where the flooding um, kind of happens. So, um, so then looking at, the, um, looking at the existing stream, looking at where the flooding is, looking at where the overland flow paths are, and um, making some kinds of decisions to, um, to protect these, um, these kinds of areas. And then I guess the next um, next part of it is is uh, obviously um, looking ahead to what the impact of this new development is going to be. Because as we all know, when we start to build, um, we start to build impervious surface, and that impervious surface, obviously, with the increased rainfall, to hurry up, has to um, is going to increase flooding. Um, so how do we reduce the impervious surface? So at the moment, forty six percent. Um, Kaingora, probably typical development, it's going to be like something like seventy six percent, and so all these have consequences um, for increased rainfall. So just um, very quickly, that that chart, the blue line, is the um, how much rainfall we're going to get for these different percentage of impervious impervious surfaces, and then the red line is what the condition will be in climate change. I mean, basically, more impervious surface, more you know, more uh, uh, outfall. So, um, and here's some, so just doing some experiments. Um, so if we decided we're going to have 45% impervious surface, um, but at the same time protected the existing hydrological network, um, what would that kind of look like? Um, and so I guess what I'm, what I'm, what this process is kind of suggesting is you're starting to build up a kind of a map of um, uh, ensuring people's safety through protecting and buffering um, hydrological networks, um, but at the same time leaving space for um, settlement patterns. And um, what you're really getting is, a, uh, I guess what I'm suggesting is you're following the logic, following this kind of logic, you're really getting a, a quite a different 
kind of urban form than we perhaps are used to um, or that we see. So uh, what is that urban form? And I guess what it what it is, if we are going to have if we are going to have to reduce the um, the impervious surface, then we're going to have to do something to that urban that urban shape. And so uh, one of the ways we use is clustering. So we we make sure the housing has a small footprint, but is bigger, perhaps taller, and is and is and is more dense. Okay. So in summary, um, I guess what I'm showing is just you know a very kind of straightforward kind of process, which obviously can be adapted, modelled in, in many kind of different ways. I guess the urban. I mean, to me, the urban implications are perhaps the most interesting because you know before we had houses, gardens, parks, we you know we had a Suburban houses, they all had gardens, then there was a park next door. Um, with this kind of process, that all those kinds of relationships um, get kind of changed around. Um, and so what I'm suggesting with this process is we have a, a more resilient urban form. Citizens are protected from the effects of flooding by the green network. It directs, it absorbs the flooding. Housing has a direct relationship to the green network. The tr traditional boundaries of public and private space are elided. So obviously all sites are different, and I mean I was talking to Tony today uh, um, about you know Christchurch and the particularity of Christchurch. But I guess the big picture is by using existing and future hydrological behaviour of the catchment, it gives us information um, about the catchment now. It gives us information what the consequences are going to be about climate change. Um, many cases we're not going to be able to do anything about it, but in some cases we can continue to live in this climate change city, um, and the city can become safer and it can become greener. Uh, mihi nui. Thank you, Matthew. Um, that was excellent. I think you helped us catch up a minute even. Um, please welcome our next speaker, Hannah Luthwaite, um, to the stage. Tena koto katoa, ko rapaki te mana, ko apawaho te awa, ko aotearoa te whenua o oko te puna, ko ōtatahi tiwa kainga toko whanau, ko Hannah Luthwaite toko ingoa. Firstly, I'd like to begin by acknowledging what we've heard tonight from our previous speakers. Dr Reid, who spoke to us about restoring adultaic heritage, Dr. Collins, who talked about a geomorphological um, past and about the potential impacts of climate change. And Dr. Bradbury has just outlined opportunities to respond by exploring different urban form and green architecture infrastructure. What I, in turn, would like to explore with you is, and to begin this conversation tonight, is what does this mean for Ōtatahi? What could it look like? Urban form implications. Dr. Bradbury and Dr. Collins both talked about, and so did Dr. Reid, about urban form and how the form and typologies impact on the environment and accordingly can both exacerbate or mitigate the impacts of climate change. First, I need to make some comments on growth. Ōtatahi and the wider region is continuing to grow. While there is significant capacity to meet long-term housing demands, 
Realising this in desired locations and providing more affordable homes is an ongoing challenge. However, we have other challenges. In addition to the pressures of climate change that we have heard about, other challenges include poor water quality, loss of biodiversity and tree canopy cover, loss of amenity, heritage and cultural values. And in addition, we know that our road transport greenhouse gas emissions are a significant contributor to climate change. Some of our roads aren't as safe as they should be. And there's a lack of equitable access to good public transport and safe cycling and walking opportunities. So I'm proposing that we think about three key shifts or new directions to go in. We need to start building up and not out. Investing in a more compact urban form, close to public transport choices where communities can drive change for the better. Restoring nature, beginning by upholding te mana otawai, that is our waias taonga, and working with tangata whenua to ensure the life-supporting capacity of fresh water. Some of the ways we can do this include taking a catchment approach to our planning, recognising that what we do upstream affects downstream water quality. Protecting and enhancing waterways and water bodies, including waipuna wetlands and springs, recognising, amongst other important attributes, their importance for absorbing and cleaning stormwater by providing buffers or sponges for water floodwaters, thus mitigating the impacts of some of the more severe storm events we are seeing with climate change. And also, importantly, restoring the indigenous ecosystems of Ōtutahi, i.e. the dry plains, wet plains and coastal, and we've heard a lot more detail tonight, so I won't go into detail here, but understanding how important they are for mitigating climate change impacts, including for carbon sequestration, slowing stormwater runoff, lowering the urban heat island impacts, not to mention our important culture and identity. Move three, weaving nature or green infrastructure throughout, planting trees and understanding the importance of interconnected green forested networks throughout Ōtutahi and connections to the region beyond. Recognising the important benefits of doing this, including increasing permeable surfaces to clean and slow stormwater runoff, combat habitat and biodiversity loss, and to provide recreation opportunities, leading to enhanced health and well-being. Here is an artist's illustration of what this could look like, a living, breathing system of green infrastructure woven throughout Ōtutahi and beyond, encompassing multiple values and enabling enabling our city to be the best that it can be. Here's an illustrated cross-section of what this could look like in more detail on the ground. So we have good public transport. This is actually an e-bus. Um, we have a street tree planting. We've got stormwater swales or gardens within our streets. So this is in the road, in the public realm. And then in the residential areas, we're building up not out, realising opportunities for green infrastructure, um, urban, you know, uh, green roofs, green walls, 
tree planting, community gardens, living streets and greenways throughout our residential areas and throughout the city, uh, community gardens, I think I said that. Um, importantly, waterway protection, urban forest patches and habitat. And I know that um, Dr Colin Merck, who's here tonight, has talked about the how we can restore forested um, patches throughout our residential areas, throughout our urban form. Giving opportunity for cultural expression, realising our identity, storing uh, stormwater and slowing and absorbing stormwater runoff before it, dirty water enters our waterways, and protecting important bush remnants and expanding on those. So, of course, this isn't easy or simple, but I would say it requires a collective consciousness and a shared vision and plan, which traverses different ways of working in both the public and private sector. We must work together and innovate, try new approaches, experiment, and do things differently to bring about transformational change. And I would also like to add to celebrate our successes and recognise what we were already doing so well. The many community groups who volunteer and partner with others to restore waterways, for example, and many of you are here tonight. The multi-million dollar floodplain management project in the upper catchment of the Apawaho, Heathcote River, which has recently earned the Christchurch City Council a national award for environmental sustainability. However, central to our success will be supporting and helping to build connections between communities with tangata whenua and their places and spaces to foster a sense of local identity, shared experience and kaitiangitanga stewardship. Thank you, Hannah. Um, thanks, everyone. We're going to have the panel discussion now. Hannah, do you want to stay up here and take that? Um, chair on the end and um, please welcome everyone else who's spoken back to the stage and we're going to be joined by Tom Parsons as well. So hopefully everyone's mic'd and can be heard. Now there's one person up here you haven't met yet tonight. Tom, are you happy to introduce yourself briefly? Uh, sure, kia ora. Um, Tom Parsons. I'm a local Christchurch resident that grew up here. Um, I'm a surface water engineer. So. I spent a bit of time looking at infrastructure responses to new development and also in climate change adaptation. Brilliant. See? Right people on the stage. Um, Tom, I thought, you know, um, Hannah in particular, John, um, Matthew, um, they've all referred to versions or types of blue and green infrastructure. Um, where in the city will people currently be familiar with some of these examples? Well, we've got um, one example was given by Hannah in the upper Heathcote, Apawaho catchment, where there have been stormwater retention basins built. Um, but typically we see these ideas playing out in new subdivision areas. So if you look at some new subdivisions, you might quite often see stormwater retention basins collecting um, urban runoff. But they're also places for um, realising other values, so ecological values, recreational values, people come and enjoy those spaces, um, as we heard from one of our first speakers tonight. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, 
Matthew, many of your examples are of development at scale. Will it be possible to retrofit this kind of urbanism, if you're not kind of order, um, with blue-green infrastructure? Can we do this in our existing suburbs? And if we can, what's key to achieving that? It's a very good question. Um, let's go. Some slides. And also some sound would be great on Matthew too. Thank you. Um, Sandringham. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so this is um, a project. So, yeah, I think your Jessica's question, um, green, you know, what we think of as greenfield sites, um, sites that don't have anything on them. This is a lot easier to start planning this kind of large-scale um, developments, these kind of ideas where you can, you can protect hydrological networks. How does it work with a, how does it work in an existing suburb? How does it work in a greenfield site where everyone's got a house and, and um, some property ownership kind of issues? Um, it's obviously not, not so easy. Um, but I think this is a kind of an interesting project. Um, again, this is uh, one of my students. Um, and so he's looking at a project in Sandringham, Sandringham in Auckland. It was um, known as Cabbage Tree Swamp. Um, so it's been flooding, it's been a wetland, it's been flooding forever. Uh, and obviously climate change is going to, going to get worse. So um, in this project, what, what um, uh, Jaden's done is he's just followed a kind of a, um, an overland flow path, you know, down you know, from the top, top of a ridge, and then he's just identified kind of opportunities along that, along that path, looking at, um, looking at um, local parks, um, public spaces, um, some more Kaiangora houses, of course, um, and just sort of stitching together these little interventions where you can actually slow that water down in public spaces. You can create tension uh, basins. You can um, use the streets as conveyance kind of areas. Um, you can, as I was talking about cluster housing, you can you know swap some maybe some lower density state housing, perhaps turn that to a little mini park, um, and then um, and then build some uh, more dense state housing, perhaps on a drier kind of area. So. Yeah, I think to answer your question, it's it's more difficult than a greenfield site, obviously. But um, but these, you know, through a series of, of kind of interventions and kind of understanding how these sort of processes work, it's really a combination of you know our engineering colleagues and and design. Um, you can so you you're kind of I guess what I'm uh, just to sum up. Um, you know, you're um, making the suburb safer, but you also running a new kind of social space, aren't you? I mean, what's actually happening? Next slide, please. Yeah, and so what's actually, um, um, so what Jane's actually created is, is actually a new kind of public space. It's like a little linear park that actually follows that um, overland flow path through these different kinds of um, areas. So saving, making citizens safe, but also making new kinds of public spaces. It's very important. Sorry, and, it's a long-winded answer. Okay, thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Um, Hannah, do you think this is entirely feasible? This kind of slow, gentle, gentle retrofit. Um, we'd have to sort of plan and identify strategically parts of the city where we could do that. Hmm. Look, I, I think um, having a long-term plan um, and, and sort of vision and then being ready to be adaptable and flexible when opportunities come up and in order to do that, you have to know what kind of opportunities you are looking for. It could be older housing that is um, likely to turn over to some 
a new urban form that is taller and denser and therefore you can use part of the site that remains to treat and clean stormwater on site. So I think it's about having a strategic vision, having a clear plan and then being ready to respond when you see those opportunities coming up. Great, thank you. Um, so public spaces obviously are going to play a key role but we can also, is it possible we make decisions um, on our own properties, commercial property owners make some key decisions. What can any property owner do uh, to contribute to this vision? Um, plenty of opportunities for people to reduce their impervious surfaces. They make choices with their driveway materials, for example, or choice to make it between a patio and a deck where you might be able to have some stormwater draining to ground. But also places, um, properties that might have a waterway on them. Uh, if we leave more room for that waterway and how we treat the banks of that waterway is very important. Um, so there's plenty of opportunities for planting and naturalising uh, waterways in the city. Great, thanks. Um, I think Courtney has a question from the audience. Yeah, kia ora. Um, I've got a question about what are some of the lifestyle choices or practices um, that people need to make to be able to make sure that we are living within the carrying capacity of the area we are and the why within it. Um, we've talked about um, stormwater and floods a lot, uh, but I mentioned that uh, one of the flip sides is too little water. Um, a good definition of, of drought, or at least one I like, is um, not enough water to meet demand, so it's a bit relative relative to, to who's there and what they want to do with it. Um, population is increasing. Climate change is not the only thing that's cha- going to change Christchurch or Tatahi. Um, and so living within our means in terms of, of our water usage is, is one thing. Um, water pricing touches on that. Uh, it's not the only thing. Uh, but So that's managing our water demand is, would, be, would be one thing from a hydrologist's point of view. Okay. Um, do you have anything, you, Daniel, do you have anything to add to that? I think similar to the response about the urban form is what can we change in our own property? I know it's not necessarily behavioural in terms of um, personal behaviour, but I suppose on your property you can, the way we plant, the way we um, uh, treat the land, the more natural we can be and the more soakage we have, the better it helps helps, uh, the waterways, yeah. Um, I'm going to be the one who says it then, I suspect, rather than any of our panellists, which I I do wonder whether our questioner is actually talking about our transportation system. So in Matthew's um, presentation, it became very obvious how much of that impervious surface wasn't just roofs, it was also space that we devote to storing and moving uh, personal private cars. And you also mentioned, Tom, you know, driveways. you know, I think, um, Rick, you could bring up my two images because I anticipated this. Um, so most people like to blame medium-density housing for the removal of gardens, but I would like to point out that a huge percentage of that area is dedicated to holding a car for a few, um, for maybe, that's going to stand still, it's not going to move, for storing a, a, a stationary car. Um, so maybe when we think about the health of water, we could be thinking about a transformed transportation system. And this doesn't just apply to medium density. Can we have my other image? Thanks, Rick. So we know there's a you know some incredible um, planting happening up in this area. This is Preston's, um, but 
you know, we've also dedicated a huge amount of space to um, a certain kind of housing, which is seen as being more palatable, more desirable. It too is um, providing an impervious surface and is very car dependent. So I was willing to say it even if no one else was. Um, yeah, sure, you can extend for that. Would also be particularly good. Your power hole um, can be described as uh, suffering from urban uh, stream syndrome, um, suffering from um, heavy metal pollution, from metal roofs, and from cars. If we reduce um, car usage, perhaps also reduce speeds, uh, reduce the need for braking, um, probably down the track we would have fewer heavy metals going to our rivers. Um, and of course, you know, I think, and it'll be interesting to hear your views on this, that by embracing and uh, the health and well-being of, of water, putting at the centre of our city and lives, it is actually not just adaptation or resilience against climate change, but potentially has a role in reducing emissions um, in this way if we transform our transportation. I mean, I think you alluded to that, Hannah. I did, and I think there's multiple benefits to be realised. For example, combining a cycleway and a walkway in a new location, perhaps it's a greenway that follows a stream and that stream is uh, restored and enhanced, um, given room to breathe, and alongside you get to cycle or to walk. So that's therefore offering opportunities for green exercise to improve our mental health and well-being, and also to get physical exercise and at the same time uh, restoring manner of the why in that location So and, and getting cars off the road. Um, so there are lots of interconnected multiple benefits from setting about to be intentional in achieving those. Great, thank you. Um, we've mostly looked at uh, public land and residential land. Are, are there opportunities within other um, land uses as well, do you think, commercial and industrial, to improve our relationship with water and make room more, more room for water? Are any of you aware of any examples? Controls put on new subdivision and um, industrial developments in terms of stormwater quality, in terms of the number of vehicles and the impervious surfaces. So that can help drive um, or reduce impacts of that development. So we see quite often um, in parts of the city where industrial uh, development is proposed, there's a lot of soakage to ground solutions and there's also on-site stormwater treatment that can help tackle some of the impacts of, of that intensive development. Okay. And um, what, I mean, it seems you mentioned on-site um, management. What does that look like in a commercial setting or an industrial setting? In a commercial setting, sometimes you see rain gardens and car parks um, that can help treat the stormwater before it is um, sent on. And where you send it on to is also quite important, of course, if we can soak that water into the ground through soakage basins or soak pits, then we can get better outcomes for uh, runoff quality and quantity. So reducing the amount of water coming off the site, but also the water gets um, improved through the device, um, through percolation through the soil. So we collect the contaminants on site rather than having that pass the groundwater through the waterway. Okay. Um... Tom and Daniel, it seems that if we were to adapt further in this way, we'd really need to better understand the carrying capacity of the whenua under our city. 
which is, you know, quite varied. We've seen that in some of the maps presented tonight. Do we have this information? You know, if we're, and if we're going to have strategic plans and visions for sort of taking um, advantage of key opportunities, there'll be some areas that are better suited to different kinds of um, greener or bluer infrastructure. Do we have that knowledge? Certainly, um, post-earthquake, there's been a significant amount of uh, ground investigation done across the city for a wide range of um, purposes, but we have some of the you know, broadest or greatest number of investigations we might have anywhere in the country. Uh, we also have very detailed understanding of groundwater in the city like no other, potentially internationally, with high-resolution groundwater monitoring being undertaken by QT. So, uh, we don't know it all by any stretch. It's a very complex system. The more data we collect, the better we'll be able to understand and respond. But that said, we also do have a pretty strong base here in the city for making good decisions about water management. Mm. Actually, that's a oh, – did you have a question, Daniel? Oh, please do. Um, so so we've, got, we've got an increasing amount of data. Um, the earthquakes um, partly contributed to that. Um, but also the earthquakes changed our understanding change the hydrology of Christchurch. Um, it's another thing that we could, in the longer distant future, can expect or, or need, to, need to consider. And it sort of also feeds into your an opportunity when things happen to redesign. Um, um, but we're never going to have all the data we might want to make decisions. Um, perfect data is, is impossible. We can supplement that with, uh, with modelling. You presume you do quite a lot of that. Um, and that can help further. But that, then that, again, is going to be incomplete so to some degree, we'll need to make decisions on, on incomplete information. Um, so making decisions on incomplete information, um, how, how do we, how do we, um, how do we do that? I mean, like, that's a, it's a really tricky question, isn't it, is the idea of making good decisions when the future is uncertain and when you can't anticipate earthquakes or um, big changes or necessarily the timing of too much water or too little water? What policies or how do our institutions have to be, John? I, th I, think, um, I think there's a, a lot of research coming together now and certainly with the development of a whole lot of range of new technologies that are coming out, remote sensing, artificial intelligence, and so on. We're able to model things much better than we ever have. So we're getting to a point where we uh, are able, certainly around climate change, um, uh, those models are improving. Um, what's also happening is uh, our general understanding of what, what's happening environmentally is improving, and our ability to predict uh, the future is also improving. So, um, you know, well, being a scientist, I suppose I'm biased, but... Um, you know, more investment into that area to be able to predict these changes, to understand these changes. Um, but I, I do think, uh, you know, we've got a pretty good idea of where things are starting to get, what sort of prob uh, challenges we're going to encounter, but also, um, you know, how we, we should be thinking to respond. And I think um, that's what, you know, sort of covering in that, in that talk, for me anyway, I think that solutions around the blue-green infrastructure um, and how we can integrate that into our urban um, spaces more. So much emphasis and all the investments gone into grey infrastructure, but how do we combine the two, blue, green, grey, to um, within uh, within cities and more broadly? 
Okay, I think we might have um, one more. Do we have another question? Courtney. Yep, so we've got one more question, uh, which is mostly focused around uh, how can our decision-making bodies such as councils um, support people through policy decisions to make better decisions around managing water through storage of their own stormwater and things like that? Part of that, there are sort of, uh, within Otutahi, some existing rules and regulations around things like waterway setbacks and the like, um, with bylaws and also district plan rules. So there are some sort of top-down type responses for um, trying to achieve ecological and environmental outcomes. It's also bottom-up responses. So there are a huge number of community groups that are working together to improve the environment here in the city and working alongside authorities. So that sort of um, working hand-in-hand, top-down and bottom-up, I think will get us the best outcomes across the city. I don't think we necessarily have all the knowledge in one place. And the more that we can share knowledge between all those in the community and decision-makers, the better outcomes we'll get. We've just received a follow-up question, which I think links in quite nicely, is what's the most important first step that each individual can take um, after this? I think um, I'll offer a thought, and it's by no means um, a comprehensive response, but I think ideally looking at information for your local area, your local neighbourhood, your local hour, um, there is information around, be it a community group or a, um, you know, online, etc. And then if you want to make a difference, you can consider, obviously, what you can do in your own property as well. And um, Tom has talked about some of those things. Um, the other thing, of course, is any of us can, in this information age, look online and read up about implementing green infrastructure opportunities, look at guidelines. Um, one I really like is in the Seattle-Vancouver area, it's actually called joining the dots. So it's referring to connections between pieces of green infrastructure. And it's a very community-focused document. It's not held um, by sort of bureaucrats. It's for everybody. Everybody can own it. And communities in partnership with one another can all have a say. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to squeeze in my last question, um, which, Hannah, you might already feel like you've answered, but do say, um, add to it if you wish. So as we've discussed this evening, the effects of climate change, as well as other drivers, demand that we change the way we designed and build our city. And this includes reducing impervious surfaces and giving more space for water and living landscapes. And we need to value this way of designing, which is what I think our previous questioner was asking. So if we want to achieve this here, what would your first priority be? What would you suggest is done first? Hannah, do you want to go first? I think it's helpful to have a shared vision. I think everybody ideally would be able to contribute their ideas and have them in one place that you can look at um, in terms of understanding the Y resource and the deformology and then be able to sort of um, come together to create a collective vision, I guess. Okay, collective visioning. John? Um, well, it's really reiterating, um, you know, the same point. Um, you know, I do think you need to have teams of um, creative um, people who have that type of vision um, 
care with uh, sort of engineering solutions and ideas of what a future can look like. And I think the other thing is to, to sort of to have that intergenerational uh, vision and thinking because you can't change things overnight. Societies are generally conservative in the changes we can make, particularly when you have infrastructure that might be around for the next 100 years. So it's always uh, having a, a long-term intergenerational vision of where you're heading and, um, and setting a pathway toward that. And I think, um, uh, but also having a very clear, um, you know, a goal in mind, I would think, of, of what sort of place you want to create in that sense. You could think about it in terms of cathedrals that took generations to build and the people that planned them and started them never saw the outcome of them. Same in Christchurch when our parks were first planted out. Those people that planted them didn't get to see them uh, when the, those trees were fully grown. And I think it's the same for, you know, each generation has that same responsibility to do that for, for those generations that are coming uh, to create that type of future. Thank you. Matthew. Question. Um, so what would your first priority be if we were to realise this watery so, urbanism for Ototahi? Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm very conscious of being uh, kind of an Aucklander giving people advice in Christchurch. Um, but um, I guess one thing I... I always, I always think maybe looking at um, looking at things in the city where people aren't looking, and so everyone's kind of looking at the, moment at the central city, and no one's looking at the periphery. Um, yeah, I just think you know, Rolleston, you know, Bangora, this kind of city is happening. This kind of infrastructure city, this logistic city is just you know kind of popping out of nowhere. Um, so I would be looking at that, and, okay. and how do cool. we make that? Part of that vision. Yeah. Um, very quickly, because we're running out of time. Tom, do you have a one-sentence answer? Well, just a little bit further that. I'll just add protecting what we've already got. So, cool. You know, tightening the rules and, yep. and doing our best to protect our existing waterways. Yep, thank you. Um, Brad. Um, well, um, with policy? Um, politics. Um, we've got three-year cycles for, for a local government. Um, we've got to think about um, a lot of the things that... Decisions are made um, in the city council, um, and people can be involved in that more. Oh, lovely. Gilda, thank you. You're welcome to stay there if you want to hear Ben Brown from there or um, to take your seats, but I'll ask Eric Kennedy up to introduce our poet. Kia ora koutou, ko Eric Kennedy aho. Um, I'm a poet, a climate change activist, and a co-editor of a, an anthology of climate change poetry from Aotearoa and the Pacific called No Other Place to Stand. Um, I've had the privilege of curating a list of poets for the 2022 Christchurch Conversations series, one per event, um, because the urgency of the climate crisis demands responses from artists uh, just as much as from policymakers and researchers. And art, too, is a form of expertise. Our poet tonight is Ben Brown. Ben is the author of a number of books, including the book of poems, Between the Kindling and the Blaze, Reflections on the Concept of Mana, and the memoir, A Fish in the Swim of the World. Um, and in 2021, Ben was appointed the inaugural Te Afirito New Zealand Reading Ambassador for Children and Young People. Ben Brown. 
Kia everyone. All right. Ko wai koe. It's a part as a question. Ko wai koe. Who are you? Ko wai koe. You are water. This simple te reo interrogative, a universal imperative, in some form or other across virtually every culture, attended in delivery by varying levels of formality, protocol and tradition, weighted accordingly in the vernaculars of power, solidarity, or the neutral, non-committal, in between as every reply is intently divined to assess degrees of familiarity, allegiance, enmity, or malice. Who are you? What do you want to every new face? That's what welcome rituals are really all about. And so in answer to and of itself, as the other side of its meaning, you are water, explicitly reveals the nature of our relationship with this spinning blue orb upon which we walk. Indivisible, elemental, essential, it is our whakapapa, and therefore inescapable. Kōwai koe, kōwai mātou, kōwai tato katoa. You are water, we are water, everyone, all of us are water. Kōwai koe is telling you what your responsibility is. There are pūrākau in the Māori cosmology that tell of the origins of te whānau mārama, the family of light, that are the sun, the moon, the stars, the celestial bodies that some call planets and others call home. The lesser lights that are the wandering comets, shooting stars, unidentified flying objects, and other enigmatic sparkles. Rangi Nuya, Tane, Skyfather, and Papatua Nuku, Earth Mother, had many, many children beyond the squabbling brother Atua that we are or should be familiar with from the story of the separation of these progenitor parents. Tango Tango and Wainui are two of those myriad offspring. Tango Tango. He is the darkness of the night and states of matter, energy, void, te poor and te kore. Wainui, she is all the waters. Wherever the rain falls and the streams and rivers run, wherever the mists and oceans rise, wherever the snows and glaciers melt away, even as hell freezes over, it was their union that gave us to find no marama. If you go down to the sea on a clouded, starless night, and observe the horizonless density of darkness that merges ocean and night sky into what first appears as one great, impenetrable, inscrutable blackness, you will soon discern within the dark nothingness soft sparks, gentle glints and flashes, gentle winks and flickers, as if tiny bits of light were being burst from the very absence of it. The storytellers who thousands of years ago framed the world saw it as my children saw it. Is that how stars are made, Daddy? According to some traditions, it was Tane, the hero, if you like, of the separation. According to some traditions, Tane, the hero, if you like, of the separation, the son who forced his father to the heavens, leaving his mother beneath our feet, Tane Mahuta, Tane Nuiarangi. It was he who placed Stefano Marama up there, so as to adorn and celebrate the glory of his father and bring light and life to his mother, the earth, that it might assuage her grieving. We should note here that one of Tane's names, he has as many as 36, is Tane Te Waiora, Tane of the life-giving waters. Waiora in te reo refers to health, or sound of body and mind. Again, the picturesque assertion that water and the human condition are one with the other. 
I say you should be familiar with the story of the separation because it is an origin story. It serves us well to know the origin stories of the places we live. Just as it serves us well to know our own personal narratives of beginning, of arrival, of genesis and creation, betrayal of stories that lead to each of us. And I must tell you, it is incorrect to regard such stories automatically as mythology. The separation story is not a myth. We are presented therein with the origin of the very human arrangement of the right to mill the trees, snare the birds, net the fishes, harvest the waterways and gardens, when only two mataoinga atua of man as the warrior stood defiant before the raging storms of Tafiri Matea, alone of the brothers to oppose the separation of earth and sky. He took his payment and still does today. Te whanau marama is no myth. It informs us that water is a potent agency of existence and the unimaginable energies of a billion suns can emerge from the nothingness of te kore, that is the void of limitless potential. Sadly, te marama also suggests by its human relationship the inference that we should wish for our waters what we wish for ourselves, unworkable in a world where some think themselves more deserving than others, even of life, let alone water. And others think more of everything is the only meaning of life at all. And so, have at it with plunderous and obviously unsustainable effects, the inevitable consequence of which not even a rat's ass seems to have been given, because it turns out that fixing the mess is something the kids will have to take care of instead. Every one of us emerged from a context not of our making, that will shape our formative years in many ways irrevocably and without our input, influence, or even consent. I spent the first few years of school trying to figure out what manner of meanness thought up these kinds of places, where you could send children to be tormented with numbers you can't count to in a lifetime and words that can't even spell themselves because nobody knows what they mean anymore. Then, you didn't shut up when someone told you, a big goofy bastard in walk shorts and sideburns of extravagant dimension was allowed to belt you six times with a bull's hide leather strap. We enter our families, our tribes, our schools, our communities and societies, so forth and so on, by means of an eternal conspiracy of biology and chance and nature, and we will be forged by whatever fires we fall into. We would be wise to consider learning the origin stories of every aspect or element of any consequence in our lives. Or at least as much of many such aspects and elements as we are able to grapple with in a lifetime. The food we eat, the clothes we wear, the jobs we do or can no longer find, the houses we live in, what they are built of, where they are built, why they were built there in the first place, the water that sustains us. We should learn these stories, understand what they're actually trying to say to us. Edit them when it's no longer relevant or in any way fit for purpose. Don't be afraid to add a flourish when a flourish seems appropriate. All of these things have stories that came with them and led inevitably to each of us. A brick has an origin story. It serves the bricklayer to know it well. If you live in the house that's built of that brick, ask the bricklayer to tell you a story. The story of water is older than life and it will be older than death in the end. Thank you very much for listening.
Kia ora, Ben. Thank you so much. I wondered how, what thought to leave us with, and I thought about what our panellists have said were the first priorities, and I've also listened intently to Ben, as I'm sure you have, and I wonder if what we need isn't so much an intergenerational vision, but an intergenerational story. One that protects what we have, that is wider than Ototahi, and that, like it or not, involves politicians. Thanks, Daniel. It makes me realise that there's a whole lot of this going on, and many of us don't even know. Um, and that with our re-elected councils, um, Ikan, Waimakariri, Selwyn, Christchurch, we'll join together with the government on the Whakawhanaiki Kaina Committee that I bet many of you have not even heard of before. This is the organisation doing the greater visioning uh, for Christchurch, that intergenerational vision that I hope will be an intergenerational story. So a huge thank you to all of us for joining this evening. A huge thank you to our speakers. Um, this has been about climate, but actually it's been about so much more. You really have greatly expanded our imaginations and sense of place and potential. And I hope that we all have a sense of our role in this renewed and greater story, this intergenerational story that could involve a regenerative relationship with water, um, one that indigenises this city um, and our wider and broader culture. So please join me in thanking tonight's speakers and poet. And thank you to our supporters and partners, the Christchurch City Council and the Urban Wellbeing Research Thread of the Building Better um, National Science Challenge. You've been so essential towards the that even us being able to do this towards 2030 edition of Christchurch Conversations over the past two years. Thank you to everyone for joining us online and in the room. If you're here in Tūranga and you want to chat, hang around um, this curtain or full back and you can hang out in the activity room to continue the conversation while we pack down in here. Another way to continue the conversation is to share this event oh, um, to share this event uh, with others and to watch it again and some of our other Christchurch Conversations events on our YouTube channel. There are 19 Christchurch Conversations on the playlist including the 10 from last year and this year. And as you leave tonight, I ask you to think and talk to others about the ways in which we could come together around this story, this idea of embracing our identity as a place of water. Water is, as we've heard, a source of life, and together we could work together so it reignites and regenerates this place in our relationship with it and with each other. And so we can better prepare ourselves collectively for the uncertainties and challenges of the future, but that will require us to be involved. That will require collective work, attention, and time. I think we're ready. Oh, Mario. You've been listening to The Water City Under Climate Stress, part of the Christchurch Conversations 2022 Climate Action Series. Many thanks to Te Putahi Centre for Architecture and City Making for sharing this recording. 
podcasts for the whole series are available on the Plains FM website. Search Christchurch Conversations. Conversations.